I was in, uh, I always say this, people laugh. I was in jail last week, and uh, I, I go to jail every week to preach to people, to, pe- to preach to people, to preach to those who are not wanting to be there, and I actually preached on this, and I brought up the fact that, well, I asked them, I said, where do you think this is being written from? Where do you think Paul is when he's writing this? And I showed them verse 1 of chapter 3 where Paul calls himself a prisoner and verse 4, I mean chapter 4 verse 1 where Paul says that he is a prisoner. He's incarcerated like those men are. But he is preoccupied with something way beyond his circumstances. And he, as you read this, does not sound miserable. In fact, Ephesians and Philippians as well is written from prison, and the theme of Philippians is joy. And he's in jail. We have no excuse to be joyless Christians because God has a plan for us that cannot be stopped and is totally dependent on him. The plan is dependent upon God. See, and what Paul is doing here, if you notice, verse 3 all the way to verse 14, this is a prayer. He's praying. He's blessing God. That's prayer. He's blessing God for his plan. Paul is praying. And not only is he praying there, verse 15 begins a prayer of thanksgiving. Paul has joy because he praises God. He is preoccupied with what God is doing. And that's what I want to be preoccupied with. And I know that's what you want to be preoccupied with. He's recognizing that God is praiseworthy. That's why I said, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be there is, praiseworthy is this God of Jesus Christ, this Father of Jesus Christ. He is worthy of all your energy to praise him. Have you ever worn yourself out praising God? Try it sometime. It gives you great joy and energy and peace when you're done because you've seen something bigger than all your problems. So this morning, we're going to see three reasons to praise God, and we will answer two questions. The two questions we will answer are, why does God give so many blessings, and what is the greatest aspect of God's glory? But first, three reasons to praise God. Paul says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us. That's past tense. He has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Why is he blessing the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ? Because he's God. Because he is the Father of our Lord. He is the Father of your human God. You worship a human God when you worship Christ. He is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and he has blessed us with 
every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. What are the means according to this verse? Look at the verse. What are the means according to this verse by which he is blessing us? Christ. Every single spiritual blessing that you have or ever will receive is in the person of Jesus Christ. He is the sum and the satisfaction of all your blessings from God. He is the beloved by which God has blessed us, by which we will praise him. And it says here, in the heavenly places. What are the heavenly places? Well, according to chapter 1, verse 20, it's where Christ is seated. So get this. He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing where Christ rules for us. See, Christ has been seated at the right hand of God for the benefit of the church. This, we call this a school, right? You know why this building exists? So you can worship God here. God did not create this planet so there would be schools for children to learn. Nothing wrong with that. But the main point of everything is the worship of God. So don't think of, well, we rent or we, you know, we meet at a school. No, this school was built for this reason. This was God's intent because Christ is on the throne and he is orchestrating everything for the benefit of the church. Everything for the benefit of his people. And it is where God is seated. That's where the, what the heavenlies are. It's where God has seated us. That's chapter 2, verse 6. We are seated with Christ in heavenly place. You know what that means? That means that it is for sure that you have a place there. Remember, Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you in my Father's house, your family, and you're going to have a place when you come. So what are these blessings, and how can we kind of get our head around these blessings? Well, think of it like this, okay? What would you rather have? Would you rather have a $1,000 gift card to Best Buy, or would you rather have a $1,000 gift card to the 99-cent store? <laughs> what would you rather have? See, the gift is according to the resources that the supplier has, right? In other words, Best Buy has a lot of great things. A 99 cent store, well, you can get a what, thousand pencils, 10,000 pencils, right? But see, what we're seeing here and having every spiritual blessing in the heavens is that we have received a gift card from heaven and this gift card gets you access to God. And it's personally delivered by the owner of heaven. And there is an infinite supply and his resources are your resources. This is what you have. And the way you access it is you pray. You go to him and you praise him and you thank him. And you ask him for things. Because he's done this for you. Christ is the access to all our heavenly resources. It was not purchased with money. What was it purchased with? The precious 
blood of Christ. See, if you were to ask many Christians, what are the benefits? What are the blessings that Christ has given to you? They wouldn't say what Paul's about to tell you here. They would list their family. Nothing wrong with that. These are good things, but they are not this list that Paul is bringing about. They would say their family, their home, their health, their career, their free country. But Paul's not an American. <laughs> Jesus isn't an American. So we need to realize that when we read Scripture, okay? We need to realize that because the things that we look at as the American dream are like a child playing in a mud puddle who doesn't know what it's like to have a day at the sea, right? That's what we need to recognize is we have so much more than what America could even offer us. So look at verse four. Paul praises God for his electing of his people, right? He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. See, Paul is saying, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's now chosen us, right? He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. This is not something many Christians would even think about praising God for, is it? That he picks people. Listen to this, though. You know this verse. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? See, God gave his son, and in giving us his son, he's saying, look, what is it that I won't give you if I will give you my firstborn? And he says, nobody is going to bring any charge against you. That's what blamelessness is in verse 4 of our text, when it says in Romans 8, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? See, God's choice removes all charges. That's good news, because I got a lot of charges against me. And God removes those through his son. I'm chosen in Christ. Jesus said, love one another as I have loved you. You didn't choose me. I chose you. He told his disciples that. Peter said, you are a chosen race, a people of his own possession." And Paul, to the Thessalonians, his message was, God loves you and God chose you, 1 Thessalonians 2.4. See, he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. How much do we know about eternity past before there was even the thought of creation? How much do we know? We don't know much. But what we do know is incredibly profound. Four times in scripture, it talks about before the foundation of the world. Wouldn't you like to know what the Bible says and what we need to know, because what the Bible says is what we need to know, about the time before the world began? Because this will give us some idea as to why the world exists. Typical thinking, human thinking, 
Even Christian thinking is, well, you know, God created a world and Adam and Eve fell and so God provided a, a savior. But I don't know that that's quite the order. Because we know there's some things that ha were happening even before the world began. Maybe something happened more important before the creation of the world. Jesus says in John 17, 24, he prays just hours before the cross. And this is what he prays. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because, look at this, Jesus talking to his father and he says, you loved me before the foundation of the world. So what do we know before the foundation of the world is that the father loved his son. Peter says, Christ was chosen before the foundation of the world. Well, what was he chosen for? To then be made visible in the last times for your sake, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. So God elected the Son to die before the foundation of the world. So what do we know so far about before the foundation of the world? We know that God loved his son before the foundation of the world. We know God elected him to die before the foundation of the world. And we know from Ephesians 1 that we were where? In Christ. Chosen by God in Christ before the foundation of the world. Revelation 13.8 says, Before the foundation of the world, the Lamb was slain. So get this, why? People ask why, what's the meaning of life? What's the meaning of this world, what's, right? People ask that. This world was created in order that God would kill his son for sinners. That's why it was made. Don't put the world before the cross. <laughs> God had a cross in mind and created a world for it. That changes our thinking, doesn't it? It really puts Christ at the center of everything. It answers the question as to why would God allow sin? Because he wanted his son to be glorified in dying for sinners, rising from the dead and being exalted in order to bring his son a bride. Therefore, God created the world. See, listen, God's love of the Son is clear. Jesus says this, listen to this. For this reason, the Father loves me. What do you think he's gonna say? Because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. Jesus tells you why the Father loves him and he loves him because he died for you. John 10, 17. See, God's election of the Son is an election of love. God is seeking to glorify His Son. He loves His Son, so He wants us to honor the Son and worship the Son. And in turn, the Father is glorified. The election of the Son is one with our election. He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. 
we are caught up in a Trinitarian love. The Father loves the Son, the Son loves the Father, the Spirit loves them both, and we are simply beneficiaries of this love, of this mutual love within the Trinity. And this is God just blessing us. This is something to thank Him for, that He is loving us even before we existed. God lovingly elects us in the Son with the goal that Christ would die for our sins, bringing glory to the Father. How do I know that? How do I know that Jesus' death and resurrection are for the glory of the Father? Because of Philippians, right? Therefore, God highly exalted him, giving him the name that is above every name, that every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Jesus Christ died for the glory of God. And so we praise Jesus for glorifying God so well because guess what? We're in Christ. And if we're in Christ, we are glorifying God so well. But why? Why does he do it this way? What motivates God to do this? Nothing but his own will and nothing but his own glory. Now, let's get really practical. Why did he choose us? Why did God choose us? What's the purpose of his choosing us? Now, I try to teach my Bible studies this. When I ask a question... I don't want them looking at me. I want them looking at the text. So the question is, look at, look at the text. Why did he choose us? What are we chosen for? That we should be holy and blameless before him in love. This is another reason to praise God, isn't it? He chose us to be holy I guarantee every person in here knows where their toothbrush is. Right now, you know exactly where your toothbrush is. Within inches, you know where your toothbrush is. You know it ain't in the garage, right? You know it ain't out back near the garbage. Why? Because you have done what? You have set it apart. Because you're going to put this thing in your mouth, you want it to be what? Clean, right? You have set this apart. God is holy, and what God chooses for himself, he makes sure, what? Is holy. God chose us, the church, to be his. The church is made up of holy people, and this is not based on your activity. It is evident in your activity, but it isn't based on your activity. The fact that you're holy isn't based on your activity. Being made holy is a one-time event. That's called positional holiness. There is positional holiness, which God, when he chooses you, he makes you and declares you holy. You're a saint, right? Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he called them saints, even though they were in a mess of sin, didn't he? They were saints. Were they saints because they weren't sinning? No, they were saints because they belonged to God. Did you know, if you study the Old Testament and you start looking at the word holy or set apart or sanctified, it talks about land, 
It talks about tools for the temple that are holy. How can a tool act right? It can't, but it's holy because it belongs to God. It is a work of God to make you holy. Think about this for a minute. He chose you before anything. Before there was anything on this earth that he made that would even be called holy, he chose you to be holy. You know what that means? That means that he chose you to be holy and that you would be holy regardless of what you have done. So what makes you holy? Election. <laughs> what? Right? I mean, isn't that an amazing thought? A particular doctrine that many people don't even care for is the very thing that makes you holy before God. He chose you to be holy. He is the one who is setting you apart. This is grace, isn't it? You are going to be like Christ because he chose you to be like Christ. Well, give me another verse. I don't know that that's very clear here. Romans 8, 28, for God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Right? I'm going to jump over there. Because I don't have the next one so clear in my mind. <laughs> 8, 28 and 29 says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Now get this. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. You will be like Christ. And so you can quit looking at yourself to see if you are. You look at Christ. You focus on him. Because think about this for a minute. According to Romans 8.13, the way you kill your sin is by the Spirit, right? Romans 8.13 says, put to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit. Agreed? So, if I'm to put to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit, I need to know what the role of the Spirit is. Why did God, why did Christ send the Spirit to this earth. Why? Jesus says, he will glorify me. So the way you kill your sin is watching the Spirit glorify Christ. How did you get saved? How did you get saved, right? You saw the glory of Christ. The Spirit opened your eyes and you saw Christ as absolutely beautiful and that he forgave all your sin, right? That's seeing the glory of Christ, is it not? Were you not spiritually dead, incapable of doing anything? Dead in your trespasses and sins? A son of the devil? Subject to the rulers of this world and everything and, and the flow of this world, right? You were dead, no response, right? And what is it that gave you life? 
the glory of the cross, of seeing that, right? So if that can reverse, think about that. If that can reverse your dead condition, seeing the glory of Christ can reverse your dead condition, can it not also kill your sin now that you're alive? Seeing the glory of Christ both brings you to God and cleanses you of your sin. Stop looking at what you do and look at what Christ has done. That's why Paul is completely preoccupied with this. He's in a miserable jail and everybody's told him he's done stuff wrong. Even the church is you know, accusing him of things. He is preoccupied with God's plan. God is making him holy. See, holiness is monergistic. Think about it. You wouldn't even know whether you're holy or not if the Spirit hadn't come. Agreed? How are you going to even know what a holy act would be? How do you even know what a holy person looks like? How do you know whatever a sin really is? Because the Spirit has made you aware of your sin and of the holiness of God. The church is being made holy. Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians 3.16 says this, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. What did that just say? That the God of peace will sanctify you completely. Why? Because this is his plan. This is the plan of the God who has all power. Do you think anything is going to stop him from sanctifying you and making you holy? Nothing will ever stop that. He chose you to make you holy. That's what he gets to do to you. He will completely sanctify you and you will. Uh, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at that, blameless again. I didn't even notice that before. Because you got blameless in here. You had blameless in Romans. He is making us blameless. Blameless means that nobody can bring a charge against me. We will be absolutely holy because of what Christ has done. There is no one in the body of Christ who is not holy even now. You're not completely holy in the sense that you have the presence of sin. But the power of sin has been broken. And it's just gimping along for you to mess with it and knock its, out from under its, knock its feet out from under it. And that's what you do by the power of the Spirit. You keep your mind here. You keep looking for Christ here. You keep seeing his glory because that's what changes you when you first date someone first date and you've maybe seen the person you've asked them out and you're going on this date right you brush your teeth right comb your hair make sure you take a shower right and you're going to put on the best right why because of the beauty of the other person you'll change because you want to be close to them. That's the same motivation. You see the glory of Christ, you are so not interested in any of the stink of sin because you see how precious he is. 
and you want him more than you want your sin. But you will want your sin more than him when you are not seeing his glory. See, your position in Christ is one of holiness. We are now blameless and he does this in love because we are in Christ, we love and we are holy. God's character is love. Therefore, what he has chosen, we will be like God. We will be loving. We will be like Christ. They will know that we are Christians by our love, in love, holy and blameless in love. Now, just to give you a little thought here, because I know if you're looking at the text, in verse 5, it seems that verse 5, at least in mine, the 5 comes after in love. And so, depending on who you read, this says, I'll read it both ways, okay? It says that we should be holy and blameless before him in love, or as some versions have put a period after before him, in love he predestined us. Now, you can pick one way or the other, but it can't be both, even though both might be theologically true. So depending on who you read, if you read Calvin, he's going to do it the way I did it. If you read MacArthur, he's going to do it, um, he's going to say, in love he predestined us, and that's because he was under a, a, a school of interpretation that was different than maybe Calvin's. But either way, the theolo theology is right. Whichever way you choose, so it's not like any heresy if you pick one or the other. So, see, I want you guys to rest in this, okay? I want you to rest in the fact that God is the one who chooses to make you holy, okay? I want you to think about this for a minute. The Christian life is a constant rest in Christ. Hebrews 4 says, strive to enter the rest. <laughs> we are to rest in Christ. At the end, it isn't faith in Christ that saves. Uh-oh, here's heresy. Right? It, at the end, it isn't faith in Christ that saves. Get this. But Christ who saves through faith. See, God does not need my faith. I do. He gives me faith in order that I could believe on him. Christ saves me by using faith. But he doesn't need it. He uses it to bring me to him. But he doesn't depend on it. I depend on it. Because Christ is the one that saves See, God is not dependent on our faith. We are dependent on our faith. God chose us. And in choosing us, he chose to give us faith so that we would believe, so that we would be one with Christ. So we praise God for his election of us. You should, I, 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 would just, I would beg you that this week you'd go and the things that you'd be praising God for is the fact that he chose you. That he chose you and if he chose you, you're secure because he will make you holy and he will make you blameless. That's something to praise God for, right? That is something to really praise him for. Praise him for the fact that he chose your kids if, you're, if your children believe. Praise him for this. 
praise him. The fact that he chose your parents or he chose your brother or your wife. We praise him for our sanctification because he's going to make you holy. He's going to make me holy. He's going to make me like his son. But now we can also see that we need to praise him in response to his plan for his predestination. Isn't it interesting that these seems to be these a lot all of these things that Paul is telling this is what you should praise God for are things that the church divides over, right? I mean, it's really amazing, isn't it? It's amazing. Paul is telling us you should worship God because of election. <laughs> what? <laughs> right? I mean, some people would be like, "What?" That's exactly what he's saying. And he's saying that we need to worship God. We need, God is worthy of our worship because in love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Christ Jesus. Predestination means that God in eternity past determined something to come about and what did God predestine? Now think about this. Predestination to many is a bad word. They're like, oh boy, let's get into this. It's a big word and all this kind of thing, right? But what is it that he says is he predestined you for? Adoption as sons. Man, these are some of the greatest truths, right? That we are going to be adopted. You're going to be a son. You're going to have refrigerator rights, right? You know what refrigerator rights are? Refrigerator rights are my son. He can come into the house, and he can go to the refrigerator, and he can get whatever he wants out of it. If I had employees, if I was had a business and I had employees, you think my employees could do that? You're not God's slave. You are God's son. You can come in. You have access to God. You can come boldly to his throne because you have been made a son. But why does it say sons? My wife here, she is a woman, and she is called a son. Why? Why does it say son? Because in the first century, when children were born, and you left an inheritance to your children, daughters were never left anything. It was the sons that got it all. So, you want to be a son. <laughs> and so God calls you a son because... Ladies, you will inherit because you are sons as well. Because, look at verse 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance. Well, how did that happen? Well, we were predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, right? So you will inherit. See what kind of love the Father has given to us? that we should be called children of God, and so we are. We are family. We live together with God and the Holy Spirit. We are a dwelling place for God. We are joined together among each other. We're brothers and sisters in Christ, and we grow together in Christ. And everything I'm saying right here, I could give you, it's all in Ephesians. We're able to confidently approach God, 2.18. We have regular access to to God our Father, 3.12. We are seated with our in our Father's house, 2.6. We have an inheritance. But what brings this about? What makes this a reality? What does it say? 
How does this happen? Through Jesus Christ, right? That's how we are children of God. It's through our big brother, Jesus Christ. He has done everything to satisfy our Father for us. We have the Spirit. See, let me just throw this out there to you, just kind of bring this family thing together. Remember Jesus, he's about to leave, and he says, don't worry, I go to prepare a place for you. Fear not. You know, don't, there's going to be trouble in this world, but don't worry about it. I'm going to prepare a place for you, right? I go to my Father's house to prepare a place for you, like a home, right? That's what he's doing. That's what he's doing. He's preparing a place for us. Specifically, what he was saying is, I'm going to the cross. Because that's the only way you're getting to this place. I'm going to prepare a place for you. But it doesn't stop there. Jesus is a homemaker for you. Right? That's what he says. He's going to his father's house to prepare you a place. Now get this. In that same chapter, in John 14, Jesus then teaches that the Holy Spirit will come and dwell in you. And he will make his home in you so that you can have access to the Father and the Son. Your trinity is a home-making trinity. It is a family. See, the trinity implies community. That's why you're all sitting here together, right? Trinity implies fellowship. That's what you have among one another. You reflect the triune God when you come here to worship. That's a privilege. But why? Why did God predestine us to adoption? Why? Verse 5. According to the purpose of his will. He wanted to. <laughs> and God gets what he wants. Listen to this. He does everything according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth. None can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? In other words, God is going to make you holy. God is going to make you a son. God is going to bring you into his family and nothing on earth can stay his hand. He does all he pleases. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the deeps. For I am God, there is no other. I am God and there is none like me declaring the end from the beginning. Right? From the beginning, when he chose you, he's also declared the end as well. This is for sure. God is going to get this done. You are going to be like Christ. But he doesn't stop there. He says, I will accomplish all my purpose. I have spoken. I will bring it to pass. I have purposed it. I will do it. Listen to me, you stubborn of heart, you who are far from righteousness. I bring near my righteousness. It's not far off, and my salvation will not delay. Get this. I will put salvation in my people for my glory. That's Isaiah 46, 9 to 13. That's what he's going to do. And who's he talking to? The stubborn of heart. <laughs> Isn't that cool? God is going to save you because he will. What a reason to praise him. You say, you, there was no way I would have ever come to God. No way. Unless God reached down and did something. It's for my glory, he says. Look at verse 6. To the praise of his glorious grace, 
with which he has blessed us in the beloved. So why does God bless us this way? Why does he give us all these benefits of, of election, choosing us, sanctifying us, predestinating us, adopting us? Why does he do this? So that his people will praise his glorious grace. So what is the greatest aspect of God's glory? It's his glorious grace. And what is his glorious grace? It's Christ. The apex of all blessing is Christ. He is the glorious grace of God personified. So think about this. If you can get close to Christ, if you can be in Christ, you are the glorious grace of God. Have you ever told your husband, you're a trophy of grace? Right after he said something mean to you. <laughs> Gotta be a trophy of grace, right? Because he certainly couldn't have earned it. Your children are trophies of grace. Because, you know, they, you know they're, they're crazy. They do the stuff, right? They're nuts. They got to be trophies of grace. We are all trophies of grace. That's, that's wonderful because, yeah, ah, man, we just, I don't, I, man, when you start realizing all that you've done and that, man. See, this is the reason God predestines us for his glory is because we would just mess it up. His glorious grace is to be our eternal praise. Why would God, in eternity past, choose people to save without giving them opportunity to do anything? <laughs> why? Because he'll get all the glory. That's why. That's why. He'll get every bit of all the glory when we couldn't have done anything to get it. And that's what he's after. See, adoption is dependent upon the one adopting. Predestination takes everything out of our hands. God chooses, God sanctifies, God predestines, God adopts all for his glorious grace. His glorious grace is completely independent of man. We never did anything to be saved. We never could. It's all glorious grace via the murder of his beloved son. Grace means to get something you don't deserve. Glorious grace is getting more than you ever imagined. Maybe you've heard this, that when you come to the gospel, you learn that you're a worse sinner than you ever thought you were. But then you also learn that you're more accepted than you ever thought you'd be. Right? That's glorious grace. So, I want to give you a big picture of Scripture and the fact that how God's plan in loving us works out just in a really quick summary and then we'll, um, we'll transition to, uh, we'll pray and then we'll transition to do communion, which is fitting in light of this. So remember what we said, that, that, that God loved the Son before the foundation of the world, right? He loved who? His son, okay? Are you curious as to when the first time love is mentioned in the Bible? When's the first time the word love shows up? It was read this morning. Genesis 22. God says to Abraham, Take your son, your only son, whom you love. 
right? A father loving a son and now having to go execute that son, but God provides a substitute, right? First time love appears in the Bible. So when's the first time love appear in the New Testament? You know where it is? Jesus is baptized and the father speaks. This is my beloved son whom I'm well pleased, right? So what, what, what about the first time in Mark? Again, Jesus is baptized and God says, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. And the first time in Luke, this is my beloved son. I mean, he's driving home a point, isn't he? Abraham, he loves him, right? God in eternity past loved the son, right? And now he's telling the world, this is my son whom I love. This is my son whom I love. This is my son who I love. What about John? Where's the first time love appears in the Gospel of John? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. What is this telling you? This is telling you how great this love of God is. That he loved this dark, wretched, wicked world. Huh. And he gave the son that he loved for us. You see, God's plan all along was to love his son in exalting him in the death that he would die for us so that God would seat him at his right hand for his glory and that you are his bride and the Bible ends with the wedding supper of the Lamb by which you will be the bride of Christ and he will serve us. This is God's plan and these are reasons to praise God for his plan. And in a few moments we're going to take part of God's plan, aren't we? Let's pray. Father, help us worship you. Help us remember what you have done. Help us submit to the truth of communion, of the fact that you died a violent death under judgment that we deserve, that you, you in our place is the message of Scripture. You in our place, you bore our iniquities. The Father was pleased to crush you for our sins. God, help us worship you, even continue to worship you as we've heard from your word. Let us hear more from your word and let us hear what you have done through your giving of your son. In Jesus' name, amen.